Good morning, Sun Valley. It's good to see you, friends, here on this great day that we come to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. On Friday, we had a, a Good Friday service here, and we call it Good Friday because of all that was accomplished in and on that day. Uh, with the death of our Savior, his burial, some wonderful things happened, which I'll cover here in a moment. But during that service, uh, we have five candles that we extinguish along the way um, during the seven last words of Christ. And the final candle extinguished is what we call the Christ candle. And it's the largest candle, the white candle that you see now lit up here in front just beneath me. Uh, and now what do you see? It's, it's not extinguished, it's lit representing his life, his resurrection. And so we, we're here today to celebrate all that, that we have in Christ because he came out of the tomb that day that he did. I'll begin by explaining, uh, begin the sermon by explaining to you uh, some central elements to what makes Christianity, Christianity. And I'll do that by explaining to you what makes water, water. Water is made up of three elements, right? Two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, right? If it has one part hydrogen and one part oxygen, it's not water. You, you take out or separate any of those three elements from the others and you don't have water any longer. In the same way, there's three elements to Christianity that must remain. And if you separate out any one of those three, it no longer is Christianity. Let me read for you how the Apostle Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, which was on the overhead, by the way, earlier in the day. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. And here are the three. First, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. Secondly, that he was buried. Thirdly, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. And so each of these three are essential parts to what we call Christianity. Without any one of these three, we lose Christianity. We're going to focus on the resurrection part of Paul's description. The resurrection is not just part of the gospel, as, as if it's something that's an element of the gospel, like hydrogen, for example, is an element of water. The, the resurrection is central. It's a centerpiece, if you will, to Christianity, to what we believe. Without the, the element of the resurrection, there is no gospel. In fact, it is the climax of redemption's history that began in the Garden of Eden with the promise to Adam and Eve. Remember, when they sinned, God promised a Savior who would come and resolve the sin problem. And here he is here in the New Testament 2,000 years ago doing just that, resolving the sin problem, particularly with his resurrection. And so the resurrection is the capstone of all of Jesus' atoning work. It is the highlight of the redemption story. In fact, we could say it began before Adam and Eve. It began in eternity past. We read in Peter's epistle that Jesus was actually determined to be the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, before Adam was created. That's amazing to think about. Before one human ever walked on this planet, God had planned to save his people 
through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the unmitigated guarantee for those of us who hope for the following things, forgiveness of sins. Are you interested in forgiveness of sin? Well, I am because I'm a sinner. And so I look forward to the fact that I am forgiven. I am con continually forgiven day by day as I sin and even before I sin, the Bible tells us. And so the resurrection guarantees my forgiveness. Secondly, the resurrection guarantees my reconciliation with my creator. That's also something I'm interested in and I would think you might be as well. Reconciliation with the one who created us. Thirdly, the resurrection is a guarantee of eternal life. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, I can know for certain that I will be raised from the dead and you can know the same. I'm gonna explain all these things to you this morning. You may already know most of this. If you don't, I'd encourage you to pay attention as we talk about this single event that changes everything. Without the death of Jesus, I said last week, as we looked at Mark chapter 15, 33 through 47, without the death of Jesus, his life would have been meaningless. In order for Jesus' life to have significance, he had to die. Now, follow with me. Without the resurrection of Jesus, his death would have been meaningless. There have been many good men, good women, strong leaders who had promise of all sorts of things that when they died, that was the end of them. Not so with Jesus Christ. That is not the case. Listen to how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 and 17. And if Christ has not been raised... Listen to the, the ramifications of Christ not being raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. So this room would be empty if Christ had not been raised from the dead. And more importantly, then the futility of preaching is the futility of your faith. Your faith is in vain. So if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. That's a hopeless sounding sentence, isn't it? We would still be in our sin if Christ had not come out of the grave. Without Jesus' resurrection, we are fools, Paul says, and should permanently cancel all religious activity. Some of you might say, yeah, hey, that's a good idea. Let's cancel all religious activity. I'm hoping there's none here like that, but there could be. But that, in fact, is the truth if Christ was not raised. What are we doing here if Christ was not raised? Is a good question to discuss, isn't it? Well, Jesus' resurrection is critical to Christianity, critical to your forgiveness, critical to being reconciled to your creator, critical to your being in heaven one day. Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul says this, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. That means he died on the cross for your sins. And then he was raised for our justification. The way that you can be just and in right standing before God is Jesus coming out of the grave, Paul says. Last Sunday, as I mentioned, I preached Mark chapter 15. And Mark described how God accomplished three critical things in the death of Jesus. 
Now you're going to have to follow me here because last Sunday and this Sunday really is one sermon cut in two. But I'm going to give you a brief summary of last Sunday's sermon in case you weren't here. So Mark says that God accomplished three critical things with the death of Jesus. First, the death of Jesus dealt with our sin problem. We all have a sin problem. Sin is that thing that, that puts us at odds with our creator. We all have a sin problem. Now, how did Mark prove or how did God confirm that Jesus' death solved our sin problem in Mark chapter 15? Mark describes the conversion of the centurion, the Roman centurion, the guy who was responsible for nailing Jesus to the cross, the guy who was in charge of his flogging, the guy who was actually in charge of killing Jesus, that centurion, when Jesus died, said, this truly was the Son of God. This man truly was innocent, which is Mark's description of his conversion. And so God confirms that Jesus' death dealt with your sin and mine by stating this amazing fact that the very guy who killed Jesus was now forgiven. That's a wonderful truth to, to see. Secondly, the death of Jesus dealt with our separation from God. Sin causes separation. This is what we read all over scripture, that because we're sinners, we're born separated from our creator, separated from God. How does the death of Jesus resolve our separation from God? Well, he died to pay the penalty for our sin. And how did God confirm that Jesus' death actually did this? Well, if you have your Bible open, you'll see in verse 38 that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And you might say, so what? Well, the curtain uh, was a, a famous thing in Israel's history. The curtain is what separated the presence of God from the rest of the temple. The temple was accessible by all priests and even by the layman in certain areas, but only one person could enter behind the curtain, which was the presence of God, and that was the high priest, and only once a year. Here we see that after the death of Jesus, the curtain that separated the presence of God from his people, from everyone, was torn in two from top to bottom. What does that mean? Well, it means that the problem of separation is resolved because Jesus died to pay the penalty. The, the thing that separates you from God is sin. He's taking care of that in his death. So now you have access to the presence of God. Jesus' death solved our separation problem, solved our sin problem, solved our separation problem. And thirdly, the death of Jesus dealt with death. The death of Jesus dealt with death. Uh, a Puritan, a really good Puritan, back in the 16th century wrote a book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Jesus' death dealt with death for certain for eternity. And you think, well, how, how's, how did Jesus' death deal with death? That's today's sermon. So now we're up to speed. The resurrection is something that was a result of the death of Jesus. Jesus could not have been resurrected had he not died, right? 
He had to have died for the resurrection to be possible. So the death of Jesus made the resurrection possible. And so when we come to the resurrection, the resurrection, that is God's proof that in fact, death has been dealt with. How so? Jesus conquered death. He came out of the tomb, right? So I'm gonna explain these things to you using verses one through eight of, of Mark 16. Uh, we read all the way down to 20. I'm gonna cover that next week because there's some interesting elements of that text that I'll need to explain to you and I can't do it today. But if you're interested in hearing that, uh, you can come back next week and I'll explain that to you. But today we're gonna to look at the resurrection. Now, interestingly, none of the gospels describe the resurrection. Doesn't tell us what happened. We get no insight into what went on in the tomb. None of the gospels talk about that. But his resurrection was a significant part of all the things that took place afterwards, right? Try to imagine with me, if you could, what actually took place in the resurrection. I described this uh, at length when we studied the Gospel of John, chapter 11, when Lazarus was raised from the dead. But here, I want you to think with me, what would have to take place for someone to be resurrected, in this case, Jesus? He had been dead three days, which means his blood would have been coagulated into jello-like material at the bottom of his body cavity. His heart would have had shrunk, his brain would have had shrunk, his eyes would have been like uh, dried grapes. So when he was raised from the dead, all those things had to reverse. His blood had to start pumping through his veins, which required his heart to start beating. His brain would have had to start making brain waves. His lungs would have had to start filling with air and so on and so forth. All these things that we might not think about, maybe even take for granted when we hear the term resurrection. But this is exactly what had to happen. All these things, all death things had to be reversed in order for Jesus to walk out of that tomb alive, which he did. But none of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John describe that. They move from the announcement of his resurrection to the aftermath of his resurrection, which is what Mark does here in front of us. Mark's account, as you can imagine, is the most succinct of the four gospel accounts and gives important details of the greatest event in human history. Keep in mind that Mark doesn't separate the resurrection from the rest of Jesus's ministry, nor does Mark tag on the resurrection story in his gospel letter that the book of Mark is about. No, the resurrection in Mark's copy and in all copies of the gospel is the climax and ultimate proof of the true identity of Jesus Christ. If you remember, Mark set out in order to prove to his readers that Jesus was in fact the God of heaven, that Jesus was in fact the savior of the world, and so he uses the resurrection of Jesus as the final argument. This is Mark's ace. This is what he wants you to take away. He wants you to believe this going away from the reading of his book. And so what evidence does Mark give for claiming this amazing fact that this Jesus, the one he claims comes from heaven, actually came out of the tomb? What are the, the fundamental proofs that Mark uses? 
Well, the first is this, the empty tomb. Look again with me at the verses in front of you. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. He begins by reminding us that in verse 1, that the Sabbath was passed, and three ladies who had come to the tomb brought spices so that they might anoint him. All right, as we continue to read, we get to the point eventually here down in verses 6 and 7 that they actually saw the resting place of Jesus Christ, and no one was there. The place was empty. The tomb was empty. And so I want to begin in verse 1 when Mark says, when the Sabbath was passed. Why note that? Was it just to announce to us that it was Sunday? Or was there more to the statement, the Sabbath is passed? I want to submit to you that Mark states the Sabbath was passed to give us a theological marker, to help us see that something significant, something fundamental has changed. The Sabbath has passed. What does the Sabbath represent? Everything Jewish, doesn't it? Everything Jewish is represented by the Sabbath. All their regulations, all their requirements, all the expectations of Jewish law is wrapped up in the term Sabbath. Guess what? It's past. Why? Because Jesus has begun a whole new paradigm, a whole new way of relating to God. The Sabbath is past. So we are no longer, as Christians, bound to those expectations that Jews were. Uh, it is past. For the Christian, the Sabbath has been replaced by the Lord's Day, which is what we call Sunday. This is why we worship, by the way, on Sunday and not on Saturday. This is why from the resurrection day forward, as seen in Acts, as seen in 1 Corinthians, as seen in Revelation, Christians throughout all the New Testament gathered on Sunday, not Saturday, not the Sabbath, to worship together. And if you wonder why Mark just didn't come out and say Sunday, instead of, he says in verse 2, the first day of the week, you ever wonder about that? Do you ever, or have you ever, come across anything in the Old Testament or New Testament that mentions a day of the week? Think about it. Why didn't he just say Sunday? Hey, did you ever read anywhere where it said Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? No. Why not? Because Jews didn't call days of the week by name. They called them by number. The first day of the week is our Sunday. The second day would be Monday, and so forth. They didn't have Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They had first day, second day, third day, fourth day. And here, Mark reminds us, the Sabbath is behind us now. There's a new paradigm, a new way of relating to God through Jesus Christ. Let's start worshiping on Sunday, the first day of the week. So the women mentioned in verse 1 were fulfilling something that was expected of friends and family of a deceased person, which was what? Taking spices to anoint the deceased one, the corpse. The women mentioned were followers of Jesus since the beginning of his ministry in Galilee for the past three years. Mark doesn't mention the earthquake that Luke and Matthew do, or the reaction of the Roman soldiers that Luke and Matthew do at the seeing of the angel, the stone rolled away. Matthew mentions great fear and the fleeing of the soldiers. 
John and Luke mention other details, but not Mark. Mark. Mark is a minimalist. If you have read the book of Mark or have been here as I've preached through it, you'll remember this. Mark is really the cliff notes of the Gospels. It is the short version. All the basic elements are there, but he, he writes in a, a quick, upbeat, short fashion to keep the attention of his readers and also to communicate this, the simple and basic elements. But Mark records that the women noticed that the large stone had been rolled away. That large stone that was placed there by the Roman soldiers, the large stone that, that Joseph of Arimathea was overseeing also, had been placed over the front of the tomb, but now that Jesus had risen from the dead, it was gone. Why? So that eyewitnesses could enter. Did Jesus need that, by the way, to be removed, to get out of the tomb? He, how would you, okay, I'm alive again, now how am I gonna get out of here? No, that didn't happen, right? No, the, the stone was removed so the eyewitness could go in. So they could say what Mark says they say here. It is empty. I saw it with my own eyes. That's what's going on with this large stone being rolled away. And I think this is where Mark's evidence of Jesus' resurrection begins. The, the tomb was empty. The, the Roman soldiers knew it, and now these three women knew it. When the Jewish religious leaders heard about this empty tomb, it concerned them, as you can imagine. And they scrambled to put together a story accusing Jesus' disciples of stealing the body of Jesus out from underneath the noses of this Roman guard, this, this, this group of seven to eight soldiers who were appointed to guard the tomb. But there are some obvious problems to this story, isn't there? We can simply ask to uh, expose the problems with this story, with the accusation of the religious leaders. Where was the body then? If the religious leaders had the body or if the Jews had the body, do you think it would have shown up after the disciples claimed that he had risen from the dead? Most certainly. They would have produced the dead corpse to prove that in fact he hadn't raised from the dead. But what about the accusation that the Jewish, I mean that these disciples actually stole the body and hid it someplace and then claimed that he raised from the dead? What are we gonna do with that? Well, I want you to put yourself, in order to solve that, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. How far would you take a lie how far would you do it? Maybe, well, you might go to jail for it if you had made a lot of money and you knew you were gonna get out in 10 years and you, know, you had buried this money someplace. You might take a lie that far. I'm not certain, well I am certain, none would take it so far as to give their life for a lie, right? They would all stop short of that. And yet what happened to every disciple except John? They were all martyred weren't they? They all gave their life for the story that their Savior had come out of the tomb. They would have stopped far short of that, wouldn't they have? I would have, you would have, they would have. And so the accusation from the religious leaders that they had stole the body doesn't hold water. They wouldn't have done that. The tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead. 
That's the first thing. The tomb was empty. That's the first um, proof that Mark gives concerning these things. The second is the angelic word. You see this angel, Mark calls him, a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe. Um, Luke and Matthew call this person an angel. It was an angel from heaven, so we can call it the angelic word. Seeing an empty tomb, of course, surprised and confused these women that were approaching. But when they saw the angel sitting on the right side of the tomb, it says it alarmed them. It scared them. Mark records this in order to communicate something. The angel, was, angel there told the women not to be afraid. Look at verse 6. He says, don't be alarmed, don't be afraid. And that Jesus, verse 6, who was crucified has indeed risen and is not here. Come look for yourself. So the angel's saying these things to the women. Now, I want to I take you uh, into a hole for a second because it's important. The Greek term for has risen, do you see that there in verse 6? You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. The, the Greek term for has risen should technically be translated has been raised. All right? Has been raised. Meaning it was a passive event for Jesus. Now follow me why this is important. He, Jesus that is, depended on the Father according to Romans chapter 6 verse 4 and Galatians 1, 1, he depended on the Father to raise him from the dead. According to Romans 8, 11, Jesus depended also on the Holy Spirit to raise him from the dead. He just didn't do it himself, even though Jesus had the power to do such things. He had raised Lazarus, right? He is called the author of life in Acts. He trusted and depended on the Father and the Spirit to accomplish the resurrection, which means that the Father accepted the payment price that Jesus gave on Calvary. This is what Paul says in Romans. The Father and the Spirit affirmed the work of Jesus on Calvary. It actually accomplished the purpose for which he died. Mark wrote in verse 7 that the angel reminded the women that Jesus had already told them about this. You see that? Just as he told you, to end the verse, Luke says that then the women remembered. Oh yeah, he did say this to us. It came back to them when the angel reminded them. But to add an important confirmation, the angel invited the women into the tomb and says, Look for yourself. The one who was buried here three days earlier is now gone. Look for yourself. Remember, this is why the stone's gone, so they could come in. The angel could have met him outside and said, hey, there's nothing in there. I was just there. No, the, the stone was gone. He said, come in and look for yourself. And so there's not only the empty tomb, but it was mentioned by the angel. And now we're going to see that it was actually witnessed by human eyeballs. But let me say something before we get to that third and final point about being witnessed by humans. Angels, are they not messengers from heaven? Isn't that what they are? Yeah. The Bible calls them that over and over again. They are messengers from heaven. If they're messengers from heaven, they are messengers of God, right? And so what is taking place here in 
these first eight verses is God announcing to the world through an angel with the witnesses of these three ladies that his son, Jesus Christ, has risen from the dead. God's making the announcement. The angel is simply the messengers. And so uh, this angel wanted to make sure that these people knew it was a bodily resurrection. It, I mean, his body was gone, which gives us clue. But he also says this in uh, verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. You want to see Jesus? He's in Galilee. Go take a look. You can see him for yourself. <laughs> it's interesting to me here that the angel told the women, remember the angel's a messenger from God, the angel told the women to go tell the disciples and Peter. Wasn't Peter one of the disciples? Why didn't they just say, go tell the disciples? Why did God add, make sure you tell them and Peter? You remember what Peter had done three days earlier? He had denied his relationship with Jesus. He said, I don't know the man. And he called down curses on himself and everybody else around him. I don't know the man. The very thing that Jesus said he would do, deny him three times. And so God here, in his mercy and grace, extends a personal invitation to Peter, the failed disciple. Now, I don't know about you, but that is really good news for me, a failed disciple. Someone who doesn't live the Christian life every day of the week as I should. I am one who needs this kind of encouragement. Go tell the disciples and the failed disciple Peter, to meet me in Galilee. Jesus wants to see him too. Jesus wants to see you, failed friend. He wants to see me. He wants to know that my sins are forgiven, even though I claim to be a Christian and follow Jesus. Tell the disciples and Peter. Now let's get to the human eyewitnesses. This is the third and final proof that Mark brings to the table to, I guess, defend his number one proof that Jesus, in fact, is the God of heaven, the resurrection. This is a powerful and long-standing evidence for the resurrection, human eyewitnesses. Paul tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that over 500 people witnessed Jesus post-resurrection. They saw him physically, 500 people, plus the disciples. So you think about this. One of the main reasons the early disciples had such courage in the face of severe persecution, remember 11 of the 12 were martyred, killed for their belief in the resurrection, for their belief in Jesus of the resurrection, but one of the main reasons these early disciples had such courage to face this persecution was because they had personally seen Jesus raised from the dead. They went to Galilee. They saw him. They witnessed it with their own eyes. They no longer had to live by faith like you and I do. None of us have seen Jesus risen from the dead. We take it by faith that these guys are telling the truth, that what the Bible says about his resurrection is true, in fact. But these people, these disciples who saw him face to face, 
had no doubts. Hence, when they were asked, are you sure you're going to stick to your story? They said, until we die. Why? They saw him. They saw him. If the resurrection had been a fraud, there was no way the early Christians would have suffered to the point of death. They willingly died for their belief in a risen Savior because they personally saw him. Now, I want to now look, have you look at these two words that Mark chooses to describe the experience of the women. Look there at verse 8. And they went out, that is the three women went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone, right? So what are we talking about here? Well, the word trembling, of course, is referring to physical shaking. They were so overcome by the announcement that Jesus was in fact alive that they were shaking in their sandals, literally. It was so impressive to them, so overwhelming to them. Mark uses the word astonishment to describe it also, trembling and astonishment. And of course, astonishment comes from the Greek word ekstasis. Ekstasis, does that sound familiar to you? Ecstasy? That's where we get the word ecstasy. They were so overwhelmed with this news, they were in a state of ecstasy that made them shake in their sandals. They couldn't hardly believe what they were hearing. I hate it when my watch does that. Did you hear that? It's just trying to explain to me the word ecstasy. And it said drug facts. <laughs> Thank you, Siri. You're welcome, it says. <clears throat> Not so sure this is all that smart, this watch. Anyways, <laughs> they left the tomb shaking in ecstasy, and it says they ran away in silence, not saying a word to anyone, which means not even to each other. No one they met on the way. They ran away shaking and in silence because they were afraid. They were in awe. They couldn't believe their ears or their eyes, but they had seen it themselves, hadn't they? So Mark began his gospel account in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, saying that Jesus was in fact the God of heaven, come to earth to be the savior of mankind. That's how he starts the book. He ends the book here with his ace. This one certainly is the God of heaven because he came back to life. He is now alive and he's up in Galilee if you want to go see him. All the way through Mark's record, he gave proof after proof of the identity of Jesus Christ, like healing sick people, people with leprosy, people with weird diseases. He healed them. He fed people from nothing. He threw out demons. He raised people from dead, back to life. And here he uses his ace. This guy came back to life. So the final proof that Jesus is God from heaven, who came to earth to solve the chaos of our sin, 
by living a perfect life that we're required to but cannot, and to die the death that we deserve because of our sin, but he did. This one came out of the grave. So my question to you this morning, friend, is do you want what the gospel offers in Jesus Christ? Do you want your sins forgiven? How about this? Do you want to be restored to a healthy and friendly relationship to your creator? Listen how that, this is done, if those things are desirable to you. Paul said in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that is in the heart of hearts, not just words coming out of your mouth, but you actually believe it, that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. You'll have your sins forgiven. You'll be restored to a relationship with God that is friendly and healthy. So, the first thing we, we must take away from this resurrection story is, I must believe it if I want to be saved, if I want to be in heaven, if I want my sins forgiven. I must actually believe this. But there's more. Simply acknowledging a fact, by the way, which many have done and not gone this second step, which I'm going to explain to you in a second, and remain in their sin, unforgiven, but simply acknowledging facts about Jesus' resurrection doesn't make you an authentic Christian. You must, you must go beyond believing these facts. The Bible says there needs to be more than just intellectual assent. Listen, there needs to be a whole life embrace of all that Jesus is. If he, in fact, is the God of heaven come to earth to be the savior of, of the world, I must not only believe that his death, his life and death and resurrection solves my separation, solves my sin, I must claim him as my Lord. This is what Paul said. If you're saying, well, Paul said you're saved. Well, he also said, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So there are two elements here that are critically important to you sitting here this morning. In order to have your sins forgiven, in order to be restored to a, a healthy, positive relationship with your Creator, in order to be bound for heaven one day, you not only have to believe that Jesus came out of the tomb alive and well, but that that one who came out is actually God of heaven and your Lord, your boss. In other words, you need to turn from your own agenda and follow Him. His agenda becomes yours now. And you can do that, friends. Listen, you don't have to go on a missions trip. You don't even have to come forward in a church service. You don't have to give any amount of money to any church or religious organization. You can do it right where you sit. It's the beauty of the gospel. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is your boss and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Believe that all that Jesus did actually accomplished everything you need before God. That he paid for your sins. That he restores the relationship to you, the one he loves. This is what's required. Do you believe it? Do you actually believe it? Jesus' identity and purpose were confirmed by the resurrection. Jesus' identity 
and purpose of, of being a Savior and Lord were confirmed by all of his activity, atoning activity, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Have you personally embraced him? Or do you still sit here demanding your own agenda, refusing to submit yourself to the God of heaven who did all these things for you? Friends, do you believe? That's the question that Mark wants you to answer. This is the question that all four Gospels want you to answer. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he is the God of heaven, your Savior and your Lord? Do you believe it? You can do so right where you sit. If you want someone to pray with you or to have a conversation with you about these things, come talk to me afterwards. The person who invited you to come to this service also knows these things. They can talk to you as well. If you've been coming to Sun Valley Church for a long time and you've never actually heard this said in such a way that you understand it as you do now, come talk to me after the service. I would love to explain it as much as you need. These things are true. These things have been confirmed over and over again. I pray that God would grant you faith to believe. Pray with me now. Lord Jesus, we do come now to this place in our service where we acknowledge that there are some decisions to be made for each of us. We acknowledge that we are indeed a needy people in need of forgiveness, in need of a savior, in need of a master who gently and lovingly guides us throughout life day by day. And we acknowledge now that he is our Lord and savior. I pray if there be anybody in this room Father, that, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would draw them to yourself in such a way that they would believe and that they would confess with their mouth these things concerning Jesus. Bless us now as we go our way. We thank you for the celebration that we've had this past um, time of Passion Week, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Resurrection Sunday. We give you all the praise and glory for all the good things we've seen in the past few days, especially today. Remembering that our Savior who loved us, died for us, rose again for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.